From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Carlos Kajina is the technical producer, and Ryan White is the live stream producer. That's it. You can watch the radio program on the uh, YouTube channel Strange Planet. You can see me in my home studio here in Thornhill, north of Toronto, where it is great to be home after a month away in Greece. And I was bouncing back and forth between Kalamata and Athens. And uh, here I am now in quarantine for the next nine days left to go. David S. Brody is an attorney turned best-selling author. He writes terrific books, fictionalized accounts that examine pre-Columbian America. And his books are really suspense thrillers. I think David has written now about 16 novels. He's just, in the last two weeks, published his latest, Sheba's Revenge, uh, which deals with, among other things, the legend of buried treasure at Canada's fabled Oak Island. And David is standing by to discuss here in just a moment. In the second hour, Charlie Robinson is a writer, humorist, social critic, podcaster. He'll be with us. Charlie has a relatively new book out called Hypocrisy and You have to see the spelling of it. The actual spelling is hippo, H-Y-P-O, crazy, C-R-A-Z-Y. So it's hippocrazy, hippocrazy, surviving in a world of cultural double standards. And he'll discuss the difficulty of navigating the current cultural climate due to constantly shifting moral values, cultural double standards, dangerous consolidation in the business community and the whole strange woke agenda. All right. Are you uh, all ready to get into some Oak Island? Let's do it. David S. Brody is an eight-time Amazon best-selling fiction writer and the author of 16 novels. I think David is more like 10-time Amazon bestseller. We'll find out in a moment. He's an avid researcher in the subject, again, of pre-Columbus exploration of America. He's frequently appeared as a guest expert on documentaries, airing on the History Channel, Travel Channel, PBS, and Discovery. He's a longtime resident of Westford, Massachusetts, and a native of Laconia, New Hampshire. And he currently resides in Newburyport, Massachusetts, with his wife, sculptor Kimberly Scott. David S. Brody, welcome. How are you? Richard, thank you. It's great to be with you again. Likewise, likewise. So I mentioned eight-time Amazon best-selling, but I think that's outdated. Is it like ten now or a dozen times you've topped the Amazon <laughs> it, best-selling it is list? Ten. Thank you for mentioning that. Yeah, it's been a fun run. These books, this whole idea, I think, of the history of America not really being told has really captured people's imaginations, and they're fun. And so people tend to read them, and I'm appreciative of that. You have sort of stayed away, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, you've sort of hinted at uh, Oak Island in previous books, maybe a certain artifact right. found there as maybe uh, examples of, you know, the fact that the Romans were around pre, you know, obviously pre-Columbus. But this is the first time you sort of have put more of a focus on Oak Island, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yes, that's a very astute observation. I've been, I have stayed away from it, um, mostly because... So many other people are talking about it and writing about it, and I didn't, didn't at the time really think I had anything original to say. 
And then I started digging down a little bit, and I, I, I don't know if you, if you know of an author by the name of Zena Halpern, who passed away a few years ago, and she's been a frequent guest on the Curse of Oak Island show. Uh, I was very close with her, and I ended up with a lot of her notes, and she had written a book very quickly um, before she passed on and was planning on doing a sequel. And from those notes and from other things I found, I, I finally sort of stumbled upon some information about Oak Island that I thought was worthy of writing about. And so I, like everyone else, took the dive into Oak Island. And, you know, I, I, my wife said, why'd you finally do it? And I actually quoted to her the, a great quote I had read, which was that all old men dream of finding the little child within who still believes in buried treasure. <laughs> that's, that's sort of why we all are so interested in Oak Island, I think we all love that the, the romance of the buried treasure, and I'm the same. I just like I just can't get enough of it. I you know I sit there once a week and I watch it, and they don't really ever find anything, and yet I turn it on again a week later, and I'm just fascinated by it, like so many other people are. Right, and just tell us a little bit about the main protagonist in this series of books, uh, Cam, and yeah. he's been. Uh, how many books has Cam been sort of featured in? This is his thirteenth. Is 13. And he's kind of a middle-aged archaeologist, investigator, but there's something new in his life. He's recently widowed in this book. Right. So the widowing happened a couple books earlier, and, ah. and boy, did I get some nasty you know, fan mail from, from, X, from X fans who were upset. Um, he had been with Amanda for 10 books, and you know, it was just one of those things. You know, if, if you have people running around getting shot at all the time, at some point, it just doesn't seem realistic if they always survive. It's like the old Batman series, you know, Batman and Robin always survive, but you know, we were little kids back then. So I decided to have the tragedy, and then he moved on, and, and he's now with a uh, sort of interesting, exotic Mossad agent, and, and that has allowed me to tie in some other geopolitical subplots into the stories, which is what I did with this. It's Oak Island, but it also ties into some turmoil in the Middle East. But yeah, so he's sort of just recovering and starting to dip his toe into into dating again. Right. So in the book, Cam is approached by a TV producer who uh, wants to explore Oak Island yet again and has a new way, sort of a new technology he wants to employ. I guess it hasn't been tried before. And it's based on the Boston Big Dig Project. <laughs> right. So aside from finding a few artifacts here and there, they've never, ever, no one has ever been able to uncover the legendary gold that's supposedly at the bottom of the money pit. But this idea that this TV producer comes up with, and he wants Cam to basically, before he goes and spends $10 million to perform this big dig on Oak Island, he wants to confirm that there is Templar treasure there. Right, but he doesn't this want, idea he doesn't want this, to contribute to the money pit. He doesn't want to be the next guy to throw his money down the pit. Right. So, but this idea that this TV producer comes to Cam with, based on the Boston Big Dig, I mean, is that is there some validity to that? Would this be a new way of excavating? I mean, it would just excavate the entire island, right? Right. So it's it's called the slurry wall excavation, and you wouldn't even need the whole island. What slurry wall construction is is essentially you you dig a big pit and you insert a slurry formula of material and they're partially liquid and partially solid and you basically freeze it and those frozen walls then prevent this pit from collapsing on itself because one of the problems with the oak island money pit is that there's a lot of water in there there's a lot of voids because so many people have dug there so often and you can't really dig too 
wide a diameter of a, of, a, of a hole because it will just collapse on itself. But this, this is a technique that was used, as you mentioned, when they did the, the big dig uh, um, depressing of the central artery in Boston, and they were, in, they were dealing with um, wet soil conditions, and this is what they came up with. And so this is not you know, unique to my uh, – I'm not an engineer. I didn't come up with this. So other people suggested doing it up there at, at Oak Island. The problem is it's very expensive. It's an expensive technique. Um, and, and, and so the producer in, in my book basically says, I don't want to drop $10 million into this unless I'm fairly certain that we think the Templars were here with their treasure. Otherwise, it's not worth it. And so he retains Cameron, Cameron Thorne, and says, look, you're the Templar expert. You've got to tell me if this is a good bet. You know, I can't, I can't ask for 100% insurance, and I understand that, but were the Templars here? And if so, is it possible that they left their treasures here from King Solomon's Temple or otherwise? before I drop all this money into this thing. And so that's, that's sort of the trigger to get the book going. He, he retains Cameron to go up there and give his best guess as to, as to what's going on on the island. Right. And so that leads us to, and this is, kind, this is pretty controversial too, uh, but before we get into the whole Middle East thing uh, in, in terms of Solomon, let's, let's talk a little bit about Sheba, which is uh, the namesake of the, you know, the title of the book, Sheba's Revenge. Right. Queen Sheba from Ethiopia. Uh, who was she? So this is—I've always been fascinated by the story because you know, every once in a while, you'll hear one of your your aunt or your grandmother say to somebody in the family, well, "Who do you think you are, the Queen of Sheba?" And I'll say, "Who, who is the <laughs> Queen of Sheba?" Well, so the story that, that you get, and it's written in the Old Testament. Basically, she lived at the same time as King Solomon, and as uh, King Solomon was very powerful in the Middle East, of course. And she was um, also powerful in her own right in Ethiopia. She was described as uh, bold, beautiful, and, and brilliant. Uh, but she, like other leaders, traveled to Jerusalem to pay homage to King Solomon, to meet him, to, to, to gain from his wisdom, to you know, diplomacy, you would call it. Um, but part of um, the, the culture in her country, in Ethiopia, was that she needed to remain a virgin while she ruled. And so she said to Solomon, who, who was attracted to her, you know, you have to, you have to promise not to, uh, to violate my chastity. And he said, that's fine, I agree to that. Um, but he also wanted to. <laughs> so, so what he did, he basically tricked her. He said, I will, I will agree not to, to, to come to your bed if you agree not to steal anything from my palace. And she said, well, of course, I'm not planning on stealing anything. What he did is he served her the night before she left a big banquet in her honor, and he made sure all the food was very salty and spicy. So she woke up in the middle of the night and reached for a water jug, which said property of King Solomon on it, and in the darkness didn't realize that and, and, and gulped from the water jug. And Solomon, waiting in the shadow, said, Aha, you violated your oath to me, so I can violate my oath to you. And so different versions of this story are told. So either he seduced her trick, you know, with a trick, or he date-raped her, basically, you know, he took her against her will. Either way, what ended up happening was um, she became pregnant, and she had a son named Menelik. And about 20 years later, Menelik came of age and, and decided to return to Jerusalem to visit his father. And Solomon, to his credit, welcomed Menelik with open arms and actually asked him if he would stay and rule by his side. And Menelik said, thank you, Dad, but no, I, I need to get back to Ethiopia and and rule with mom. I'm, I'm the, you know, the heir to that throne. And Solomon said, great, I understand. What I'm going to do for you is I'm going to send with you 
the sons of my best cabinet members, my best ministers, so they can advise you just as their fathers have advised me. And Mendel thought that was great, but the sons were not too happy about it. They liked their life in Jerusalem and did not want to go to the backwaters of Ethiopia. And so they conspired to do uh, to steal the Ark of the Covenant, basically saying, if we have to leave, we're going to take the Ark of the Covenant with us. And so they left with Menelik with the Ark of the Covenant. And when Solomon learned of this theft, he gave chase. And the story, uh, that story is not told in detail as much in the Old Testament, but there is an Ethiopian uh, historical source called the Kebra Nagast, which right. goes into great detail of how uh, this chase incur, uh, occurs and the escape route. But eventually, the Ark of the Covenant, according to many sources, ended up in Ethiopia, and according to many sources, it, it's there today. Um, but that essentially is, is, is the story of it, about Sheba and Solomon, um, that that's how the Ark of the Covenant ended up in Ethiopia. And if you, if you read the, uh, even today, to this day, the Ethiopian Constitution declares that the the king of Ethiopia shall be the the bloodline of this union between Sheba and Solomon. Right. So the the the, the up until recently, I guess uh, the the leaders in Ethiopia were a, they could draw a direct line to Menelik, the son of right to, to Menelik, Solomon exactly. and, and Queen Sheba. Wow. Amazing. Right, and then I think it was in the seventies. I think there was an uprising. Might even later that there was an uprising within our within the last generation or two, and that's no longer the case. But for for you know, many many decades or centuries prior to this, exactly the 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 leader of Ethiopia could trace their bloodline all the way back to well, three thousand years ago, about nine hundred right. BC. And then there was an airlift because it was a civil war in Ethiopia, and the, uh, Israel airlifted, right. I'm not sure how many Ethiopian Jews, back to Israel, and, and were they also then d- descendants these from Menelik? They, they were probably descendants of the advisors sent to advise ah. Menelik. Remember I mentioned the minister's sons always right. sent. And so that's one of the theories as to how the Ethiopian Jews ended up down there, is that they descended from these advisors. All right. So the other, the other uh, sort of subplot or main plot in Sheba's Revenge has to do with the location of ancient Israel, and this is where it gets controversial. Very controversial. Uh, be- yes. Yes, because well, you explain what one of the um, characters in the book discovers about the location of ancient Israel. Right. So or ancient Jerusalem. Sorry, ancient a- Jerusalem. Ancient Jerusalem. Yeah. So. E- even today, um, if, if you just open up a Wikipedia page and read about Jerusalem, one of the first things you read is that there actually is no archaeological evidence of Jerusalem going back to the time of King Solomon, which is really shocking, because Solomon, if you read about what he built, he built the temple, of course, a palace, a hall of justice. He had five or six major um, structures, and they were the center of all this international trade, and it would be as if um, centuries or millennia from now people were looking for evidence of Washington, D.C., and could not find the Capitol building, or the White House, or the Supreme Court, or the Smithsonian building. It's uh, almost unbelievable to think that they wouldn't be able to find evidence of any of the great structures of Washington, D.C. It's the same thing in Jerusalem. There's no evidence whatsoever of any of Solomon's structures in Jerusalem. And so a lot of Arab sources have 
been arguing for about 40 years now that the true Jerusalem, the true Jerusalem of King Solomon's time period, is not in what we call Israel today. Instead, it's in Western Arabia, Western Saudi Arabia. Um, now, of course, if that were to be true, that would call into question the whole Jewish claim to the Promised Land. I mean, if, if the Promised Land was not really in, if Jerusalem wasn't really in Israel, then the Promised Land is not Israel, it's Western Saudi Arabia, which, of course, nobody wants, it's just desert. Um, and so Arab sources have been sort of kicking this idea around for a while, and Israeli archaeologists have been desperately trying to find some kind of evidence that supports the claim that Solomon's Temple really was in Jerusalem, and have not been able to do that so far. The reason it becomes interesting in, in light of the, the Sheba and Menelik story, as I mentioned earlier, that, that Menelik and his, and, his, and his ministers with the Ark of the Covenant uh, escaped from Solomon, and, and the Kebra Nagas describes their escape route. And if you read the escape route, it makes absolutely no sense if the if they started in Jerusalem in Israel, but makes perfect sense if they started in what the what we'll call Jerusalem in Arabia, the the the, the spot that uh, a number of Arab sources believe it, it should be, um, place names and and how fast they could travel and how many days it would take and when they would cross the 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 Red Sea and all that stuff. It, it just makes no sense if you leave from traditional uh, Jerusalem, but it makes perfect sense if you leave from Arabia. So that's an interesting, the combination of the lack of archaeological evidence and the detailed escape uh, described in the Kebra Nagas sort of gives some life to this possibility that Jerusalem really wasn't in, um, in, in Israel. The story would be that the Jews were exiled uh, at, during the Babylonian invasion, or I think it's 587 B.C., around 600 B.C., right, right. that they spent... 70 or 80 years in Babylon, which is modern Iraq, and that when they were finally freed, that that's when they went to modern-day Jerusalem, a few hundred years after Solomon. And, and at that point, we do start to see archaeological evidence, the idea being that nobody in the, during the Babylonian exile remembered where the real Jerusalem was. So when, when the leaders said, hey, we can't go back to the old Jerusalem because it, it's, it's no longer, um, we're no longer welcome there, we need to go to a, a new Jerusalem, but we need to sort of tell the people that it's the old place, so they're excited to go. But no one will know the difference. We're just going from, you know, we're, no one's old enough to remember, so we're going to go to a different one. And so they go to the modern-day Jerusalem around, you know, 500 B.C. instead of 800 B.C. And then right, we start right. seeing archaeological evidence. Um, so that, uh, that's, we that's take sort a, of the We've got to take a quick time out, David. Sorry, yeah. we've got to take a quick time out here. We'll come back and uh, discuss further, and, and we will link this back to uh, the legendary treasure of Oak Island. David S. Brody is with us. He's got a brand new one called Sheba's Revenge, and we're talking Oak Island, folks, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Big Brother is listening, and so are you, to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And we are back with David S. Brody. The brand new one is Sheba's Revenge. He's also the author of Pillars of Enoch. That's pretty recent as well. Uh, Watchtower of Turtle Island, Romerica. I think that's the last time we spoke, David, when you wrote uh, when Romerica had just come out. Um, yeah, I've been, I've been pushing these out pretty quickly the last couple of years. <laughs> During the pandemic, I've done every six months. I've been releasing a new one. So, wow. But I think you're right. Last time I spoke was uh, Romerica. 
That's right. Oh, uh, before we go, get going again, I just want to uh, give a quick shout out to a couple of my Patreon supporters in the Star Chamber tier. I want to thank uh, Deep Paul and Tim Sullivan. Deep Paul and Tim Sullivan, thank you both so much for your generous support. And uh, if you're interested in becoming an official supporter of this program and all of the work that we do here, you can go to patreon.com forward slash strange planet patreon.com forward slash strange planet again deep paul tim sullivan uh your uh, your generosity is greatly appreciated and i'm very humbled by it thank you so much all right so we were talking about uh, queen sheba and uh also evidence that ancient is uh, ancient jerusalem was in western saudi arabia although i have to say um uh i i, I don't necessarily believe that i mean there there is some it's an interesting argument i think about 10 years ago they found um some defensive walls in um in jerusalem and right around where they believe the the first temple would have been located and and uh there were um uh they were pretty thick pretty thick walls and i'm not sure several hundred feet long and there was a gatehouse and and different things. And um, it does mention, I think, in First Kings that Solomon built, built these defensive walls. So I don't know if that's the if that's the smoking gun, if that's the archaeological evidence that would would prove that uh, Jerusalem was located in Israel or not. However, it's um, they, they keep digging and hoping to find more, perhaps. Um, right. It's, it's, so, I mean, there, there, there are hints at it, but there's not nearly enough, not nearly as much as you would think. Again, right. if if, if the, the the structures that Solomon built were as elaborate as have been described, you would think it'd be very easy to find them, and we're just not finding them. And so um, there's other there's other like other little hints about this. For example, um, I don't want to get too deep into the into the, the argument, but there's a whole thing about um, when Moses is wandering in the desert, he runs into his he's in the Sinai desert with the, you know for forty years. Uh, wandering, and he runs into his father-in-law, uh, Jethro, Zipporah's father, and uh, and that story always never made any sense to me either. Because if you're wandering in a desert as big as the Sinai, um, it's about the size, uh, almost as, about two-thirds the size of the state of Maine. I mean, you don't just wander around and run into somebody. I think a more realistic story is that he went uh, looking for his father-in-law, who happened to live in. Uh, not in the Sinai, but uh, in Median, which is in Western Arabia, and because that's uh, Jethro was the ruler in that area, and that Moses had had been exiled previously and had gone, and that's how he met Zipporah when he was in Western Arabia, Median, and so he went looking for him. So instead of wandering around, he said, well, instead of wandering a strange desert, I'll wander over to this other desert where my father-in-law is, and he'll be able to give us supplies and some land. And that story, and there's a Mount Sinai there, just like there's a Mount Sinai in the Sinai Peninsula. That story sort of holds water. Um, and then more specifically, we get to the point where they finally decide to stay and, and settle, and the book of Joshua goes into specific detail, the painstaking detail, about how land is given to each one of the Jews who are wandering in the desert. This amount of land, and described here, given to given to him and him and him and him and him. And the one thing that's shockingly missing in this is that Moses' children, sons, are given nothing. They're not mentioned at all, which is a really, uh, again, shocking uh, uh, occurrence. So why, why would Moses' sons be left out of this? 
what suddenly occurred to me, the reason left out is if this land was owned by Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, and they were divvying the land up and dividing up some of the land and giving it to everybody, there'd be no reason to give it to Moses' children because they're going to inherit it anyway from their grandfather. Right. So it would be like the king giving out land. He wouldn't give any to his sons because the sons get everything that's left over, everything that wasn't divvied up. So that's another sort of piece of this argument is if you read the book of Joshua, it, it, it's very strange that Moses' sons are not accounted for in the land distribution. So again, it's another, so, another evidence. But, but yeah, so it's, right. it's still an open question. And, and the point in my book that I make is that Israel doesn't want this to be a debate. Understandably, they, they, you know, sort of the whole basis of, of the Promised Land and the Holy Land and all that, they just don't even want to have the conversation. They don't want to let it dignify it with a response. And so in my story, once this starts to, to percolate, the Mossad gets involved. So we, need, we, need to, we need to end the story now. And the way that they decide, one of the ways they decide to do it is they say, hey, you know, if the, if the Templar gold is really buried at Oak Island, and the Templars got their gold from Solomon's Temple in the early 1100s, which most people agree they did, then we can test that gold and prove by one of two methods. One is, is basically every gold sort of has a, every gold mine has sort of unique fingerprints and attributes. The mineralogy of every gold mine is different, so we would know where the gold came from. And also, we can tell when the gold was poured from its molten form into some kind of mold. Uh, there's a helium test that can be done. And so if we can prove that the gold that came out of Solomon's Temple is indeed 3,000 years old, then, then this whole argument goes away, because it would prove that it comes from Solomon's Temple, and Solomon's Temple is where the gold came. You know, everything, everything falls into place. And so right, that's right. how the Mossad so, gets involved in, in the Oak Island mystery. They want to get ah. the gold and use it to prove the, that this whole argument about uh, Jerusalem and Arabia is bogus. So is that, is that true, that you could determine the location, the, uh, the exact location and the time the gold coins were minted using, uh, you, you mentioned helium? This is all technology that's available today? Yes, so um, all gold contains um, traces of uranium and thorium. Uh, when they decay, they produce helium. I'm getting in trouble here because I'm not a scientist. But when gold <laughs> is put in its molten form, the helium is lost. Once the gold cools, the helium's locked in again. So t you take a sample of the gold and melt it down again, and then you can determine how old the helium is. How, how long has the helium been locked in the gold? By, you, you can ascertain it by measuring its rate of decay. So you know, I can't, but this is, this is done in a lab, and, and, and this is a technology that allows scientists to determine the age of gold objects. Uh, this becomes very important when you're trying to determine if you're a museum, for example, whether something is, you know, is, is some kind of forgery, a gold, was it real, did it really come out of an Egyptian tomb, or is it a, a 19th century or 20th century fake? And so this technology becomes very important. Uh, but it could be used, if, if gold were to be discovered at Oak Island, we could use it, if once it's been poured, we can date how, we can date, the, as you said, the time of minting, if it happened to be a coin or if it was just a, a, a candelabra or a goblet, we could date, the, the, go back to the time of when that was poured. And that, becomes allow, that allows you to, to basically determine the origin of the object. Well, that's remarkable. So then, then the, the uh, key to, to proving 
the location of ancient Israel or ancient Jerusalem in Israel lays or lies thousands and thousands of miles across the Atlantic in the money pit in a little island off the coast of Nova Scotia. That, <laughs> well, again, all this presupposes that the Templars really did find right. Solomon's gold under the, under the you know under the Temple of Solomon in the horse stables back in the 1120s or whatever, and that they did indeed bring it to Oak Island, uh, probably you know after they were outlawed in 1307 or maybe before, and that it still is there. That they never actually took it and did anything else with it, but there it is. So you know, all this is you know. I'll, We've got a, a, a number of, of, of jumps we have to make, but, you know, I write fiction, so I can have some fun with it. But that's how the story, that's how those two subplots link together, how the Sheba story links back to Oak Island. That is a great premise, David. I mean, wow. Oh, thank you. Fantastic. Fantastic. Um, right, and, so, and there's, there's some strong evidence at Oak Island. I mean, there's, there's, there's in particular, I'm, I'm guessing this would be your next question. I don't want to jump the gun on it, but the, the carb, this carbon fiber, I'm sorry, coconut fibers that have been carbon dated and the coconut fibers come from these flood tunnels, and there's three different um, carbon dating tests, and they all come back in the 12, as 12th century uh, dates for the, the coconut fibers. The coconut was used to uh, to to, to um, filter uh, the the flood tunnels, the, the the box drains along the beach, so that they don't get clogged up for these flood tunnels. Um, and there's really no way for for the coconut fiber to make it to Oak Island, because, of course, coconuts are not native to anywhere near Oak Island, other than they were brought there by somebody in the 12th century. Now, who's out there sailing the oceans, crossing the Atlantic in the 12th century, other than the Templars? I mean, it, it almost has to be the Templars. So there's strong evidence with the, with, the, with the coconut fibers that there was a Templar presence on the island, and, and there's also the, 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 the lead cross that the, they've made a big deal of in the last couple seasons. Again, 12th century, um, and, and they've tied that lead cross to other Templar-related sites in Europe as well. But um, there's lots of dates at the island that are later than that, but of course, that it's the earliest dates, that, in my mind, that are the most important, because that establishes who first settled on the island, or first deposited treasure on the island, and then later dates are just more people coming over, either to to check on it or to remove it or to add to it or whatever, but the original dates of these 12th century dates, and they tie in the, the two of the dates, for example, uh, 1185 and 1180, are smack dab in, a, in accordance with Zena Halbert's research of, an, of a journey to the Catskills uh, and Oak Island, 1179 to 1180. It's, it's we'll, we'll get to that. When we we'll, right uh, when we come back, David, we'll take a quick time out. David S. Brody is with us, and uh, we are talking about Oak Island. The book is Sheba's Revenge. More in a moment. Don't go away. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And we're back with David S. Brody. The latest is Sheba's Revenge. We're talking about Oak Island, and you mentioned Zena Halpern, and this was... Uh, he's the, the, the noted Oak Island uh, authority expert who passed away. What, was it 2018 or no? It was earlier this year, wasn't it? Uh, no, it was. Uh, it's been almost three and three and a half years, I believe. So I think 2018. Ah, I think you're correct. Tw- it was that. 2018. And so there's this this map uh, that Zena Halpern had. Um, I think it's. I think you may, you have it 
printed in the book, Halpern's Map, right? right? And this right. this shows there's an arrow pointing to an island. It's not actually Oak Island. I think it's Frog Island, and there's a date on there. Or it's not a date. Some people think it was a date, 1347. Now others are saying, no, that's not a date. That that 1347 has has to do with navigation or some. There's some controversy around that map, right? Right. There, unfortunately, and I don't know if we have time to get too deep into all the Cremona document research she was doing, but no one has any originals of any of this stuff, and so a lot of it is, you know, is is, is in my mind the 1347 is the date somebody recopied this original map from 1179 or 1180, but. For the purposes of the conversation tonight, on the map, uh, uh, the, the map is labeled um, in French the um, the Island of Oaks, and then on the map is a, speci- a specific point that's mentioned, the vault beneath the earth. And this map has been shown many times on, on the Crystal Oak Island show. For some reason, they've never bothered to dig under the vault beneath the earth. Actually, I know the reasons because they, they didn't until until very recently didn't own that particular swath of land. It was part of uh, the Nolan land, uh, Fred Nolan's land. So only in the last, I think, two seasons have they actually owned that land to be able to access it. But um, it turns out that the, the the spot on the map matches exactly the foot of Nolan's cross. The very um, the boulder, the Nolan's cross, is comprised of a number of boulders, and the, and the very bottom of the cross, the foot, uh, there's a boulder, and that matches up where Zena's map shows uh, the vault beneath the earth. And so in my story, that's where they go digging, looking for what they hope is going to be the Templar gold. The vault beneath the earth. And yeah. and um, you mentioned, or I, th- I think you mentioned the Cremona document, his, his Halpern's research on the Cremona document. And this is what kind of ties the Templars to Oak Island, right? It describes their journey to Oak Island and the right. Catskills you mentioned. Right, the journey 1179 to 1180, um, where they, they stop off in what is described as an island of oaks and it's off the coast of what we now know as Maritime Canada. It looks like Oak Island, and they continue on. They, they deposit, um, it looks like gold there, and they continue on and eventually end up in the Catskill Mountains. And most of the document deals with their time in the Catskills, but um, importantly, they do stop in, in off of Nova Scotia on their way into further south and further east. One of the things that they, 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 that they do when they're um, in the Catskills is they, um, it, uh, they, they, they find or they deposit a scroll, which is the, the ketubah, the marriage contract between the Hasmonean princess Miriam uh, Miriam of, of, of Migdal, which is basically Mary Magdalene, and uh, Yeshua ben Yosef of Cana, which is of course Jesus, son of Joseph of, of Cana, son of Joseph of Cana. So this this scroll, this marriage contract, apparently is one of the things that they brought over, and that and that ties in with all the you know the the, the, the legends of the Templars and why they. Uh, were eventually put down by the church, and what what what, what great secrets did they discover when they were in Jerusalem, and and all the Da Vinci Code stuff with Jesus and Mary Magdalene getting married, and and all that. And again, we don't have time to probably get into all that stuff tonight. But that's that's where these maps come from. This this whole pile of documents, which are called loosely called the Cremona document, and within that document are maps. And this particular map of Oak Island 
with the vault is what I use to trigger the opportunity to dig uh, at a spot that might have the Templar gold. So on the TV show, um, they haven't they're they're preparing now to finally dig under that vault. No, they're digging this season. They're digging. Um, they're, they're they're staying at the money pit and they're and they're they're digging with with larger um, pipings. Um, I don't know if they're going to. It's only been two episodes, I think, this year. I don't know if they're going to be digging under Nolan's Cross. Um, you know, one of the things that they that this TV show and 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 I'm not involved with it, so I, I can't speak to it firsthand, but. It's almost like killing the golden goose. If they actually were to find the Templar treasure, then the show would pretty much end. You know, part of it is the longer they can draw this out and keep us all interested and continuing to make finds that that lead to the treasure, the longer the series can continue. And so I've always thought that they are not necessarily interested in finding the treasure right away, because then what happens? This franchise is worth... You know, it's the Golden Goose. It's worth a, It's the highest-rated show I think History Channel has, and so I don't know how anxious they are to actually wrap things up. Now, I also know this year that the government of Nova Scotia has sort of jumped in and has restricted them as to what they can do, where they can dig. Um, they had free reign for a long time, and now they are much more restricted um, bureaucratically as to what they can do. All right, we'll take one final time out, David, come back and uh, discuss some more uh, Oak Island, perhaps maybe even a little sneak preview of, well, I guess it's your previous book, uh, Pillars of Enoch, back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Just a reminder, coming up in hour two, Charlie Robinson will be here. And uh, his new book is Hypocrisy, but it's spelt as in crazy, C-R-A-Z-Y. And uh, right now, a few minutes remain with David S. Brody. The latest book is Sheba's Revenge. We're talking about the treasure of Oak Island. Uh, any question in your mind that, that there is, in fact, Templar gold there, David? Uh, very much. I, I think if you had to pin me down, I would say that I believe that the Templars did deposit gold at Oak Island, but that later on it was taken away. Um, I just don't think that an organization that is that powerful and that knowledgeable and that good at keeping secrets and maintaining itself would just sort of forget that, that they deposited all this treasure and lose track of it. I I've heard one of the things that's that floating around out there, and there's another set of journals, not related to the Cremona document, but another set of journals, again, that have not been substantiated. But those journals talk about how the treasure was taken in 1775 by a group of Freemasons who came up to Nova Scotia from Philadelphia and brought the gold back and used it to fund the American Revolution. And I think that's a really fun story, and it sort of resonates to something that makes sense if we believe that the Freemasons, you know, were the successors to the Templars, and, and the Templars were early um, promoters of the sort of the American ideals of liberty and freedom of religion and some of the things that we like to think the Templars were, 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 were 
at the early stages of, of supporting in, during the, the Renaissance and the Enlightenment period. Um, but that story would, would be a, a nice story. Um, I don't know if it's true or not, but, but I, I, big picture, I, I just can't believe that it would still be up there. I just can't believe they'd forget about it and have left it, lost track of it and left it there. Right. This idea of using that gold to fund the, the revolution, um, I think it was Sir Francis Bacon. Didn't he sort of refer to the New World as the New Jerusalem? So that might make sense then for the Templars to want to to fund that project, right? Get the right. New Jerusalem the off the ground. Well, yes, the New Jerusalem and sometimes also the New Atlantis. But yes, the same idea, which was that you know so many of our founding fathers in America in, in the United States were were Freemasons. And they were, you know, promoting this ideal of this new experiment in um, civil rights and individual rights. And again, not that the Templars were 100% behind all that, but they were partway there. They were starting to, you know, they had been exposed to a lot of, quote-unquote, liberal ideas by traveling around the world. Remember, Europe was just coming out of the Dark Ages at this time, and, and, and none of these ideas had taken hold and the Templars learned a lot about this stuff while traveling and brought a lot of it back to Europe. And, and many historians think you can trace the Enlightenment back to the ideals and ideas that the Templars brought back to Europe from the Middle East and the Far East and other places. And so the, the, the roots of all this can be, can be traced back to the Templars. And it does make sense that the Freemasons, being the successors to the Templars, would have wanted to continue that experiment or that new Jerusalem or the new Atlantis and and that use that treasure would have been that would have been a perfect use for that treasure it, it, it makes sense like I said it's a nice story I just don't know if it's true or not right right I, I interviewed the I think he's the great grandson of Jesse James who was on the program a couple of times and he believes his great great grandfather uh, you know he faked his death lived um, I think well into the like the 1940s, it might have been in Oklahoma City or someplace like that, and he believed his great great grandfather was also involved in Templar treasure and had made a number of treasure maps, and they they were adorned with interesting Masonic symbols and so forth. Have you heard about that story? Yeah, I've seen that book. As a matter of fact, it's on my list of, of things I'd like for, for the Christmas this year. Um, I haven't ah. read it, but I've seen, I've seen that story. But again, this goes back to what I said earlier, which is, you know, all of us want to believe in those treasures. You know, it's a, all of us old men, we, we want to, to find the, the child within us that still believes in the dream of buried treasure. Um, it, it's, it's, hard, it's hard not to be seduced by those stories. And they're fun. It's true, absolutely. I, uh, flying home from Greece the other night, I, I finally got to see the Goonies from 1985. I'm, I'm a little late getting to some of these, but that's all about you know young kids looking for for buried treasure. Um, yeah, yeah, we all we all see. spend our you know, age nine, ten, and eleven before we discovered girls, you know, either playing sports or, or, or digging in our backyard looking for the treasure or panning for gold in the brook or something. So, yeah. That's it. That's it. Uh, on the YouTube live chat, uh, YY is wondering, why don't they use, um, uh, I think it's called Sire Radar or Sira Radar, Synchronous Impulse Reconstruction uh, Radar to find the treasure at Oak Island? <laughs> I have no idea. I don't know what that is. But, I, you know, I, I'm... I'm guessing that they're privy to all the latest technology. I know they have a huge budget for that kind of stuff. I have no idea why, you know, Gary Drayton doesn't have, 
you know, a magic wand that does that as well. I'm, I'm sorry, I can't answer that one. Right. I'm not sure if it's Sire Radar or Sira. Anyway, um, I got to ask you, you mentioned that we, we were talking about the, the Freemasons a little bit, which uh, brings us to your, your previous book, which um, came out, I guess, this past spring, The yeah. Pillars of Enoch, Templars and the Melungian Legacy. What's that the about? Melungians, yes. Yeah, so the Melungians, they're a, a mysterious group of people who live in Appalachia, uh, southern Appalachia, so Tennessee, North Carolina, Kentucky, and there are some famous uh, Melungeon people. Elvis Presley is probably the most famous. The um, Tom Hanks, the current actor, is Melungeon. Cher, the singer. Uh, Ava Gardner, the actress. But the thing about the Melungeon is, is no one sort of knows where they came from. There was a Supreme Court decision in, in uh, having to do with voting rights back in the early 1800s that, that declared that they were the descendants of the of the Phoenicians. But and DNA tests sort of indicate that they're partly Portuguese, partly Cherokee Indians, partly Sephardic Jews, and partly North African, which is an interesting conglomeration of people. But in my story I, I, I start musing about those groups of people and, and what you end up with is basically the the vestiges, again for me it's always goes back to the Knights Templar but the Templars, after they were outlawed, that sort of fits with what they were. They were they were travel. They were they were sailing this across the Atlantic. They were pirates. They were in Portugal. They they uh, they accepted a lot of Sephardic Jews in their order after they were outlawed. So, you know, I started wondering whether you could trace the Melungeon people back to the Templars. And what's interesting about the Lungeon, and what, the way I trigger the story, is that it's pretty clear that the mother of Abraham Lincoln was Melungeon. And that would mean that Lincoln himself had perhaps African blood in him and Sephardic Jewish blood in him. And that opens up all sorts of interesting things when you start thinking about American history and, and you know, how would that affect what we learn in school if it turns out that Abraham Lincoln... You know, he wanted to free the slaves, maybe because he identified with them, and that if you start looking at some of the, for example, his his, his grandfather and a couple of his uncles were named Mordecai, which is a, clearly a Jewish name. You know, and right, right. Even the name Abraham itself is is, is generally a Jewish name. But um, it's just interesting to think that perhaps Lincoln had other things going on in his life that would have motivated some of his decisions. So that's what I use sort of to trigger that story. But the, the ancient Melungeons, the Melungeon people, uh, to this day even, we're not quite sure, they're not quite sure where they descend from. But DNA testing is sort of honing in on that, and it, it seems to indicate that they are a conglomerate of people from, that, 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 that had similar, a similar path to America as potentially the Templars had. Oh, it's remarkable. It's remarkable. Do you ever you look back on your days, you know, taking history in high school and, and thinking, my gosh, they were so off the mark. We just fed such a pile of malarkey. I, I do, but I had a great second grade teacher. I remember raising my hand once as a little eight-year-old or whatever it was and saying, Mrs. North, why is the timeline between the Vikings and Christopher Columbus, why is it such a 500-year gap? I don't think I use the word gap, but why, why did nobody come back after the Vikings and before Columbus? 
And she looked at me and raised her eyebrow and said, that's a good question, David. Maybe someday you can answer it. So even as a little, <laughs> what, seven-year-old, eight-year-old, whatever I was, I had a great teacher who was saying to me, go figure it out. You're right. There's this stuff missing. And I, to this day, well, I, always, I was thankful to Mrs. Norris who, who sort of put that in my head that I can go answer some of these questions. Um, so, yes, it, yeah. it is a shame that we didn't learn all this stuff, but, but it's also fascinating to start to fill in some of these gaps. Uh, well, and you've been doing that, David, quite nicely. So we've got uh, Sheba's Revenge just available, I think, the last couple of weeks on Amazon. Just the last week. And yes. Just last week. Excellent. Yes. Well, congratulations. You've done it again, David, and uh, always enjoy yes. a, a visit from you, and we'll talk again soon, probably on Coast, I hope. I hope so. It's always a pleasure to be with you, Richard. Thank you so much. Likewise. David S. Brody. All right. When we come back, Charlie Robinson will talk, uh, well, hypocrisy, spelled C-R-A-Z-Y, surviving in a world of cultural double standards. My name is Richard Serrett. This is The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Plenty of more show to come. Hour two coming up.